0: welcome to
1: the extra environmentalist your opposable thumb means nothing <laughs>
0: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
1: Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Moser-Katz along with my co-host Justin Ritchie and we are here with our third episode of The Extra Environmentalist podcast.
0: Seth, it has been a crazy month since our last episode. We've talked with KMO and Doug Lane which we're going to play our discussion with them here today. And uh, there's been a lot of things that's happened. Uh, You've interviewed elk.
1: I have. I've interviewed a tame herd of elk that somebody in my company has raised for the past 20 years. Tame, very mellow herd of elk that just kind of come when you call them. And if you've never seen an elk before, an elk is a 500 pound mass of muscle that is just writhing and ready to eat anything in its path but mostly they just eat grass so if you just think about how much grass has to go into a 600 pound elk makes you think a little bit
0: that's a lot of biomass in one piece of mammal
1: what's been going on with you justin
0: crazy stuff i had a lot of guests here in vancouver showing them around the town Uh, getting settled into the new place, finally, uh, and bringing in uh, a lot of great stuff at UBC, which we'll talk about at the end of the podcast that's going to be featured on future episodes of The Extra Environmentalist.
1: Now, we have a really exciting show for you today. KMO and Doug Lane are two fellow podcasters who have inspired us in a lot of different ways. For our first interview on The Extra Environmentalist, we wanted to have a really hard-hitting show. So we invited those two on to our show to talk a little bit about a little feud they've been having on Facebook.
0: So it was a few weeks ago that I, I went on Facebook and I saw Doug Lane post something about how KMO said he was actively looking forward to collapse on one of his recent episodes. And then KMO responded uh, to that Facebook message saying that uh, Doug had misheard him and that he was reading from an article. Uh, and then this turned into a back and forth discussion on Facebook that really didn't belong on Facebook because, as you all know about Facebook, the uh, amount of text you can actually put into each reply is quite small. And so basically what happened was there were multiple misunderstandings, and Doug was trying to summarize his views of KMO's points, and essentially it was incredibly confusing. So we wanted to use this episode of the Extra Environmentalist podcast and our first interview to do something a little unprecedented by bringing four podcast hosts together across three different time zones, and to really look into what was behind this uh disagreement or spat, you could say, on Facebook.
1: And I really can't think of a larger, more excellent format for those two to talk, but another podcast and the Extra Environmentalist podcast to be in particular.
0: Exactly. Perhaps this can be a good introduction to you when it comes to uh, dealing with issues of societal complexity, energy, ideology and many other topics that have to do with the current global predicament uh, facing us. All I can say is that I've been listening to the Sea Realm podcast for a very long time now. I remember back, I think it was like episode 40 or 30 was the first one I listened to, somewhere in that range. And so it's been really cool to listen to KMO's views and the guests he's been interviewing change and grow over time. And then when Doug started the Diet Soap podcast as a response to the Sea Realm, Uh, I've been listening to that as well, and so uh, it's been very cool over the last few years that I've been listening to so many podcasts to see those two hosts grow in their views, in their hosting styles, Uh, and now to actually have them both on the show today is quite a milestone in Extra Environmentalist history because it is our third episode.
1: It is indeed, and those two guys were definitely part of the influence that started the Extra Environmentalist, we're really excited to have them here. How long, so,
0: Seth, uh, until we develop an episode of the podcast that talks about the origin story of the Extra Environmentalist?
1: The origins of the Extra Environmentalist. Hmm. Well, you have to stay tuned to find out. Yes. Stay tuned to the Extra Environmentalist, and you might hear a little bit about us and all of our exploits in the world, the real world. Anyway, I set Justin up with a little bit of a introduction assignment. And he went a little bit crazy, but it's good. Take a listen and you'll enjoy it.
2: financial collapse. Faith in business as usual
3: is lost. Stage two, commercial collapse. Faith that the market shall provide is lost.
2: Stage three, political collapse. Faith that the government will take care of you is lost.
3: Stage four, social collapse. Faith that your people will take care of you is lost.
2: Stage five, cultural collapse. Faith in the goodness of humanity is lost. (laughs)
0: Seth, I can't believe you're making me do this. Alright, I'll give it a shot. In this corner, weighing in at over 224 episodes, we have the conversator of collapse, the transitioner of alchemy, the one, the only, KMO our challenger at 75 episodes the indicator of ideology the picker of battles douglas lay So we invited you both here today uh, to hear how your views differ on collapse and social transformation, Um, not to have you specifically both go point by point down Dmitry Orlov's five stages of collapse, which we're using as a base for this discussion, Um, but also just to have you respond whether you think that uh, collapse actually proceeds in this manner. Um, And so maybe we can start there in just discussing um, how a collapse uh, could play out and then what you actually think uh, a collapse looks like.
3: Sounds good. See, what I want to talk about is God, because all that throughout this series of collapses that we are described, there's only one thing that's lost every time, and that's faith.
0: Yeah. So, so KMO, as as far as faith goes, it, it would be interesting. Interesting to hear your thoughts on the role that faith plays in each of these stages, and then taking that and saying, do these stages exist even without faith? Hmm.
2: Well, the way Dimitri describes them, uh, each of them is a loss of faith. It, sometimes I think that the, um, this, the consequences of each stage result from a loss of faith, but you could also take it from the other way and say that, once these, uh, these stages of collapse have played out, then, as a result, people lose faith in various things, starting with the financial system. So this is one sort of collapse, and it's uh, a cascade. And as Dmitri describes it, it requires you know, a lot of really maladaptive responses at each stage in order to propel us on to the next stage.
3: It seems to me that in the case of Soviet Union, that uh, what happened was at least it could be argued that political collapse was the very first thing that happened, and then you had a variety of other things, but that the state's power was undermined first. That that maybe other things led up to that, but that if you're talking about collapse proper rather than recession or, or other social problems, that perhaps political collapse was the first thing that, that happened. But um, my problem with, with with this model is not the order in which he puts the different collapses, but uh, some of the details in it. And then also just kind of one of the things that's missing from it. But.
0: Right. So the the point for starting this discussion were, um, were all of your uh, points, Doug, that you outlined regarding KMO's views on collapse, and then KMO responded to those. One of those uh, got me thinking about do they actually provide an impetus for what you would define as an improved social structure, and I think that's, that's one way that both of you can differentiate your views.
3: I don't think that collapse necessarily uh, leads to social transformation. I think that there is no particular empirical fact that you can point to that will – that you can say, oh, if we just have this, then we'll have social transformation, I think that social transformation basically has to be something that is collectively done and willfully done. I'm not a a good Marxist in that way, because Marx would say that the logic of the historical development of capitalism itself will just create the conditions that make the socialist utopia kind of an inevitability. And I don't believe that. I think it's something that people are charged to create, some social transformation. So... I think there's good arguments against the idea that immiseration and and desperation are a good basis for social change. But it may be that we're just dealt certain cards and now we have to try to play them out. I think the real question isn't what outside force will lead to social transformation, but really, do do we want a social transformation? And if we do, how do we get it?
2: In terms of what Doug said about transformation having to be willed, I think that is false. I think that is just self-evidently false. I mean, the, the style of interaction that we enjoy right now, sort of interaction whereby people of modest means can communicate using this very elaborate apparatus of electronic communication is not something that was necessarily willed. Each little piece of it was built according to somebody's preconceived design and somebody's will, but the ultimate effect is emergent. It's not something that was planned. I think that if the people who actually spent the money to develop these technologies and build this infrastructure understood the transformation that it would catalyze and enable, they might have had second thoughts. They might have built in some safeguards to keep people of our means from using it the way that we do. So I think that a lot of what happens, a lot of the, the way that we interact with one another is emergent, and the social structures that emerge from that are not planned, and they are not willed in advance. They are not visualized in advance. They are something that just auto-catalyze and come into being of their own. In terms of how we relate to one another, I think it's, it's pretty self-evident that a collapse, and by collapse here we're using the, you know, the Joseph Tainter model of collapse where you have a, a rapid and dramatic reduction in the complexity, either technological complexity or social complexity, hierarchical organization. If you change radically the way that people relate to one another, for example, you remove channels like this one where we are communicating, you know, four people in three different time zones, then social transformation is a given. The way you relate to other people will change dramatically. Now, whether it will be a positive social transformation, it, whether it will be, you know, a bootstrapping up to the next level of consciousness is open to debate. And I, I know a lot of people are very fond of saying that video games have levels, consciousness doesn't have levels, and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that.
3: I want to just address something that, that KMO said, that social transformation can occur without any you know anybody wanting it to, basically. It's something that can happen from the outside. To be really kind of simple-minded about it, like we can imagine a, uh, a meteor smashing into the earth and destroying most of our infrastructure, and that will change the way we relate to each other, right? And it would. But I think that what's being left out of that is... I mean basically if we're facing the kind of collapse where we are just going to be changed by an outside force, uh, I don't see really what the point of discussing it is. Obviously when I talk about social transformation, I'm talking about transforming the uh, society for the better, becoming more egalitarian, just operating on a, with a better set of relationships to each other and to the earth and so – That's what I mean by social transformation. Now, if you just mean change, any kind of change, I think that there are changes that are going to occur with collapse, but they may not change the primary basis of our social relationships, even if they do change the way people contingently operate in them. So for instance, we could still be in a capitalist society, but have a huge portion of the world not have any access to high technology. Right now, only an elite portion of the population have access to these technologies. Changing what portion of that population has access to those technologies may not change the social system or the social structure very much. It may just intensify the social structure. But one of the things that strikes me is we have to kind of get to where we think we are now before we can talk about what collapse would look like. One of the problems that we, we have with talking about these issues is a strong desire to get out from under ideology. To just talk about things as realistically and as straightforwardly as possible. Often in that very attempt to get out from under ideology is where you end up most deeply mired in an ideological perspective. And usually what that means is the ideology of your current system and the powers that be in that system.
0: What we can do here is have KMO talk a little bit about the underlying ideology in, in his viewpoint on the social transformation that can result from the drawdown of complexity.
2: Many of us, and this is certainly true of me, possibly more so of me than for most people, but it was very pronounced in my life. I lived a life where I covered a lot of ground physically every single day. I had a long commute, and then I would go to a place where I would sit in a little cubicle tied to a computer, looking at a computer screen, and I would hear the voices of people in my ear who were very upset at the corporation for whom I worked. And I had no positive regard whatsoever for this corporation, but I was required in order to draw a paycheck to represent this corporation in an antagonistic exchange, a largely scripted antagonistic exchange, with this person whom I thought had a legitimate grievance. And this went on for eight to ten hours a day, five days a week. And I hated it. All of the underlying technologies and corporate structures and laws and financial ways of doing things were to break down. And people were to be forced to find ways of interacting face-to-face with the people around them in a way that every person got to contribute according to his or her unique talents and aptitudes and gifts. And did so in a way that caused the people around them to recognize and acknowledge those aptitudes and those gifts. And if each person were seeing every other person around them as an individual and as somebody who is of unique value and as somebody with whom they have a uh, a very vital and necessary sort of interdependence, I think that would result in a higher quality of life.
4: Ideology was a relatively new term when Marx and Engels used it in the German ideology in the middle of the 1840s. The term ideology had been coined in the 1790s by the French rationalist philosopher Distoute de Tracy to distinguish ideology as the science of ideas as opposed to metaphysics. The term very quickly took on a pejorative sense and Marx and Engels use it that way in the German ideology. There, ideology refers to theory that is out of touch with the material processes of history. The ruling ideas of any epoch, Marx and Engels argue, are nothing more than the ideal expression of the dominant material relationships, the dominant material relationships grasped as ideas. But the relationship between material processes and the ruling ideas of an epoch is perceived in reverse. And Marx and Engels describe this phenomenon in a way that has echoes of their critique of Hegel's idealist conception of history. In a passage from the German ideology, they write, if in all ideology, men and their circumstances appear upside down, as in a camera obscura, this phenomenon arises just as much from their historical life process as the inversion of objects on their retina does from their physical life process this negative sense of ideology as false consciousness was the most common usage in marxist theory until the last part of the twentieth century it was among other things a convenient way to account for the reluctance of oppressed workers to rise up in revolt however there is another sense of the term in which ideology is not seen as a false consciousness against which a true scientific reality might be opposed, but instead ideology is seen as the fundamental condition of human consciousness. This understanding of ideology as embedded in material signs and as inseparable from material and historical processes can be found in many places in Marx and Engels' writings. But a particularly clear statement of this argument can be seen in Vian Voloshinov's Marxism and Philosophy of Language. He writes, The only possible objective definition of consciousness is a sociological one. Consciousness takes shape and being in the material of signs created by an organized group in the process of social intercourse. The logic of consciousness is the logic of ideological communication, of the semiotic interaction of a social group. If we deprive consciousness of its semiotic, ideological content, it would have absolutely nothing left. Consciousness can harbor only in the image, the word, the meaningful gesture, and so forth.
0: Doug was speaking about how his view on social transformation doesn't necessarily arrive out of, out of that change, but simply that there has to be some sort of action or social action uh, to bring about those relationships between the people who find themselves suddenly outside of that context they're used to existing in. So, Doug, maybe you could speak on that point of distinction.
3: What's left out is this idea of faith in other people, uh, in the society, uh, and what's left out actually is kind of self-consciousness. Um, so I, I'm not sure if I can, I have this idea in my head as to how what Camo said and what the, the conversation of collapse is about so far connects to what I want to say about faith and ideology. Um, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to make it clear, but I'll give it a, my best shot.
0: Yeah, and, and KMO, feel free to, to jump in and, and both you and, and Doug you know, engage in that sense.
3: The thing is, regardless of whether you're working with someone locally face-to-face or you're working with them over the phone and there's thousands of miles between you, you're always working in, in a field of ideology. You have to have some sort of agreement about meaning and what you're trying to do in order to work together. That's, that's the faith that we lose and collapse. You can change the scale of society, but if you don't change that ideological basis for society, the society will have many of the same problems. It may have to be reshaped somewhat, but it will have many of the same problems that it had before and many of the same good attributes as well.
0: So you're saying um, what's, what's really collapsing in each of those five stages or whatever model of collapse you want to talk about is not just the faith but the ideology that supports each of those stages?
3: It used to be that people were organized socially through their relationship to gods and god's representatives on earth, and the Enlightenment project and in the Industrial Revolution killed God. That's no longer the force in the world. There are lots of reasons to think that's a, that was a good thing. But we haven't quite faced up to our responsibility that's left after the death of God. Nietzsche tells a story about the madman running to the marketplace to tell everyone that God is dead. The madman went to the marketplace to tell us this news about God's death because the marketplace was where we had placed God. This was where God's essence ended up. It was a new social glue that held everything together, the commodity relationship. So God's power was no longer didn't have any qualities anymore. It was just just pure essence in the commodity on earth. And what this means was, so we killed God, but it was an unconscious act. And we projected God's power out into the world. And God's power isn't, you know, like Zeus throwing lightning bolts. God's big power is to organize us, being our social glue. That's what God's real power was. God doesn't have that power anymore. The commodity does. Now, if you don't address... That commodity relationship, then people are going to continue to be organized ideologically in the same way. And as long as you don't face that ideology of the commodity, which is what organized society, no amount of technical fixes are going to change things. Now, that's not to say that there's no material basis for our ideology or in that our ideology doesn't affect the material world. It's not to say that if we run out of energy, we're not going to die. You know, I'm not an immaterialist here. I'm just saying that we are psychological, sociological, conscious beings. We're not rabbits. And you have to talk, you have to change the ideological and political structure. One of the things that our mother culture wants us to do is to think that our self-consciousness is a problem that needs to be eliminated.
1: Doug, I think what you're talking about is something that's very fundamental in what is human, is is very like a greed or a... Something that drives us in, in the organizational way that we organize ourselves. Is greed, do you think, a very organizing way that humans uh, I don't find think themselves so. in?
3: I don't think greed's primary. I think that, you know, there are natural desires, but I don't think that the kind of excessive greed, compulsion to accumulate, I don't think that's natural at all. I think that's, that stems from God. <laughs> that comes from my, the ideology of the culture. Um, different cultures are di- completely different in how what, what gives people social status and what they need to be successful in the culture. And greed is just one way of answering that question. And it's the current way. But I don't think it's natural at all. I don't think that's part of human nature. I don't think we quite know what human nature is. I think the one thing that I can say with some conviction is that human nature is alienating because we're self-conscious. That's what sets us apart. You know that Zen riddle about Who is the self that can think or ask a question about the self? That's our condition.
2: Well, I'm sure you've all seen the movie Waking Life. You know, at the very end, uh, Dreaming Wiley walks into the bar and he finds the director of the film that he's in, Richard Linklater, playing pinball. Mm -hmm. And he describes his situation to Richard Linklater. And Richard Linklater said something which springs to my mind now in relation to what Doug said. He said to the dreamer, I'm not saying that you don't know what you're talking about, but I don't know what you're talking about. And when you're talking about God and our conception of God changing, and that causes our social relations to change, I think back to something I was reading just the other day in Douglas Rushkoff's Life, Inc. And he's describing how we've been sold this bill of goods in terms of the Dark Ages and the Renaissance, that the imagery that we're sold of the Dark Ages, you know, of plague and starvation and people living in just incredibly austere conditions and abject poverty, These are images of the 14th century, but the images of the 10th through the 13th century, the the age of cathedrals, would be one in which people were using two different types of currencies, mostly local currencies, but also for long-distance trades, you know, the, the coin of the realm, or the centrally issued currency. And in that situation, not very much of the productive wealth of local communities was shunted to the central authority. It mostly stayed where it was, and people had to find ways to invest it. And this was the age of cathedrals, because they had so much excess that they could build these cathedrals, which they were building, you know, for their kids to make their towns into tourist destinations for pilgrims. And it wasn't until the local currencies were outlawed in favor of the coin of the realm, which could then be debased and which has its own sort of bias, that this poverty really set in. And, you know, the, the bias of a central currency is to take wealth from the periphery and send it to the center. And as that happened, people became so poor and so destitute and so malnourished, they became susceptible to plague. And then you get the images that were sold of supposedly the entire Middle Ages. But prior to that change in currency, people were being, you know, peasants out in the countryside were quite prosperous and doing quite well. And during that transformation, the Vatican And the Church of England, they didn't change the official conception of God. They changed the currency, and they changed the way the currency worked and the way it moved around. And that created this huge social transformation, which for most people was a transformation for the worse. And the notion of God didn't change appreciably at all during that period. Later, images of God and conceptions of God changed, and I would say that they changed in response to changing social conditions.
3: Kamo just said that there was a good feudal period in history, that, the fe- that feudalism isn't all bad, and that God didn't create the social order in the feudal period that a more natural product did. That
1: well, I didn't the say coin of the, that the,
3: the, the Well, but that, was, that, was, that wasn't God or our social relationships. It was the scale of basically exchange and money and the way money operated in the feudal period that changed the way people conceived of God. Local currencies or national currencies or you know, uh, centralized currencies, coin of the realm, that these, these things had a different role under feudal lords and kings than they do now. That coin was not the primary or only force that created production.
2: The major difference between them is that the local currencies were worked into existence. They represented a deposit of agricultural products in a central place in the local community. And that those agricultural products that this money represented were decaying over time. And that was built into the currency. So the longer you held the currency, the less it was worth. So you had an incentive to spend it quickly and to change this financial capital into social capital by sharing it with the community and investing in other people and investing in your community whereas the coin of the realm held its value indefinitely and that provided people with the impetus to hoard it and to try to maintain their wealth in the form of this currency which did keep its value over time
3: okay so So my question is um... how was the coin of the, uh, the the local currencies how was how was that worked into existence what do you mean when you say that
2: people would grow crops they would take their crops and they would turn them over to somebody who was going to store them and that person would issue them a receipt. And that receipt was usually printed on some sort of stamped foil, and it had a date on it. And each year they would recoin that currency, and if you held your currency for the entire year, then when it got recoined the next time around, you'd get three-fourths of what you had before. It's like negative interest. The longer you hold it, the less it's worth. So you're motivated to turn it into something valuable quickly. So the first thing you do is you go and you get all your equipment refurbished. So next year you've got good equipment to work with. But then you still have an excess, so you start looking around for other things to do with it. And what they did in, uh, between the 10th and 13th century in Europe was they built cathedrals. Right, so basically this,
3: instead of gold-backed money, this is wheat-backed money, and the money would go bad because the wheat would go bad.
2: Right? right, and since you can't store your wealth in the form of money, you were motivated to use it as quickly as possible for the betterment of your local community and to cement the ties with the people around you. Thus, strengthen your social ties, whereas with the central currency, screw the people around you. You can hold on to that money for as long as you can, and it retains its value, and in fact, you can even earn interest from it.
3: How do you determine who owns the land, Camo, to generate that, and who controls the crops?
2: Who controls the crops? I mean, the people who grow the crops, they work well, their Well, the people who own the it. land,
3: right? The people who own the land are the people who who have say over where those crops go don't they
2: uh, i think ownership is sort of peripheral i mean people have access to land that they can work in an agricultural way they're working their wealth into existence
3: wait so you're saying that there was a common land that people could work and they would take their labor power and then put it into the bank my understanding was that there were feudal lords on various levels that owned the land and the peasants worked the lands for those lords
2: regardless well, of we get how into the first cons- detail let me just that's important point. let's back up and Go say ahead. you gave an example saying our ideology, in this case, our conception of God changed and this drove social change. And my example was to say we had a change in the way that money was issued and the way that people were allowed to encode their wealth. And that caused enormous social change. And during that period of enormous social change, The official ideology about God didn't change at all. So you're saying ideology drives social change, and I'm saying here's an example where enormous social change took place, and there was no change in the ideology about God.
3: Well, see, but here's the thing. When I say ideologies drive social change, what I really mean is that ideology shapes how we relate to social power. I don't mean that social power has changed, but what's changing is who has power in society and not what our currencies look like or... I mean, those things change as well, but that's a changing of of power relationships. So God is a way of organizing those power relationships. The reason why owning the land would be an important question is because it brings that power relationship back and it necessitates something like God. Without it, if you could just go to a state of nature where everything was held in common and there were no differences between people— you could find some currency that would work or some technical fix that would work to do the social interaction for us. But there is no undifferentiated starting point where people don't have political differences and power differences. And certainly the feudal period is not a great example for that.
1: Doug, maybe we can just get a little clarification on what you mean by God because there's a lot of different what, – what does that mean to you I, when you say God? See, I, I'm, I'm not talking about any
3: – metaphysical entity. I'm talking about what its social function was. So God was was our ideology. It was the way we thought about the world that helped us relate to each other socially. So you're God saying
1: was, the, the, the beneficial parts of humans, the benevolent parts of human beings that when they get together in groups, they form benevolent organizations. Benevolent or not,
3: actually. I'm just saying that if you want to understand or figure out why we have like the class system that we have, back in the feudal period, you didn't uh, refer to the natural world. You referred to God. You'd say, oh, God gives these forms their meaning, their justification. The reason why there are feudal lords and there are peasants is because of their relationship to God, the source of social power.
0: So is God the central organizing principle or just the justification for the central organizing principle?
3: God had qualities. So I think that both is kind of be my answer. I, God's nature justified the social order, but, but the question is, which came first? Wh- whether God came after the fact? I think He probably came after the fact. I don't think that uh, these social relationships are natural, and, and that, you know, or that or that we thought of God and then implemented His plan or anything like that. It was God arose as a justification for our social relationships and the and the way power is and low power is divvied up.
5: hunting and gathering societies, there might have been something like uh, a few dozen types of social personalities, a few dozen types of roles, whereas, in contrast, Mm. modern censuses recognize something like 50,000, 60,000 types of distinct occupations. Mm. So we developed more and more parts. We have more and more social institutions, more roles. We process more and more types of information. So that's part of complexity. Part of complexity is more and more parts to the society. Now, in people's everyday lives, this means more and more things to do, more and more activities. Um, I mean, parents of young children know how congested their lives are getting the kids to all of the activities that, that they're involved in now and that mostly didn't exist when I was a youngster. Uh, and, and this is stressful. Uh, it, it makes people feel harried in their lives. Having many many options, um, of course, gives us uh, great opportunities, but it also makes people feel harried. But going along with more and more parts is more and more organization. Organization is what binds it all together. Organization is what causes all of these parts to work together as a coherent whole, as a coherent system. Let me let me give an example. Um, And the example I like to give is the aftermath of the terrorist attacks on September 11th, 2001. Stop and think about what our response to that has been, or at least the response most immediately. We developed new government agencies, Department of Homeland Security, Transportation Security Administration. We reorganized other agencies. So this is all more and more part. We developed more parts That's part of complexity. And at the same time, we developed more organization. In in other words, we have established more and more controls over people's behavior so that you now spend your time in long lines at the airport getting scrutinized for security purposes. Um, You have to fill out new kinds of forms if you do certain types of financial transactions. And and these are the common kinds of responses that a society makes when it encounters problems. The the common response to problems is to increase complexity, to develop more and more parts to cope with the problem, and more and more organization to cope with the problem. Now, the challenge for complexity is that it's not free. I like to say that, that in the world of complex societies, there's no free lunch. It's a phrase we've all heard. Uh, And it really applies here. Complexity always has a cost. Now in people's everyday lives, the cost might come in terms of money, one of our main currencies. It might come in terms of time. It might come in terms of time, for example, spending in, in a security line at an airport. It might come in terms of annoyance having to fill out forms at the bank if you're doing certain kinds of financial transactions. Um, So the complexity always costs, but ultimately the cost is energy, because everything in our society runs on energy. A person's time is ultimately paid for by energy, primarily petroleum. Money originates because our our society is very wealthy in energy. And this allows us to do a lot of different kinds of things and to have the economy that we have now. So complexity and energy go together. They they form almost a spiral. As one goes up, the other has to go up. As complexity increases, energy has to increase also. And so this is the situation that we're in today, the the energy complexity spiral. Um, Cheap energy allows our society to grow more complex, it allows people to do different kinds of things, to engage in different kinds of activities. It it allows businesses to bring out uh, all of the new products that people enjoy. But at the same time, um, just given the world that we live in, problems arise and the problems themselves require more complexity. Always. And so, um, the energy and the complexity go up and up.
0: I think that's the key point of distinction between both of you is that KMO is saying that given a change in the social structure, we can build a new God. Whereas Doug is saying God is acting from the top down, and even if the system slides out from underneath it, whatever arises in its place will still gravitate towards that organizing principle.
2: Well, that's an I, interesting uh, idea, but that doesn't have anything to do with what I was talking about. I have all right. Yeah, that's, that's, not about <laughs> that's not the basis right. of our difference. That's not the basis of our difference.
3: The basis of our difference is whether or not you want to make that coin, whether it's the local currency or the coin of the realm, something that is non-ideological. These ways of relating to each other, these economies, are economies of social power, and as such, they are always ideological.
2: That, that's My what, that, response to that is that the ideology in the example I just gave was consistent over this enormous social change. And it was a change in the way that money was issued that allowed wealth that was created at the periphery to be shunted to the center, whereas with a model where you had both a central currency and operational local currencies, you could create wealth where you live and keep most of it in your own community. And the stories that people told each other about their relationships to one another because of God didn't change much at all during that period, but there was enormous change as a result of the way we were organizing society and encoding wealth and moving it around with currency. And my general point is not anything to do with currency. It's just that the ideology that you're so wrapped up in just seems to be secondary in terms of how we relate to one another and how power gets wielded.
3: So you're saying the stories we tell ourselves, whether they're religious stories or not, don't actually influence our behavior or what we produce that much. But I'm overemphasizing how much those stories matter.
2: I think you are overemphasizing how much those stories matter. Yes,
3: I think that th- this abstract thing, money, is another story we tell ourselves in order to justify power. And you're saying no, the stories that we tell ourselves in or- don't actually influence the power relationships that are there. They don't have any relationship to them. The the way our society operates. Isn't shaped by our ideology primarily that it's I think our by ideologies
2: now. are mainly justificatory. I think they they provide some closure and some support for the way that we do things. But in fact, the way that we do things is largely, you know, it's just self reinforcing. And yes, there are classes of people, uh, oligarchs or the super elite or whatnot, who are certainly the beneficiaries of the way we do things. And they are very strongly motivated to keep innovating and refining the justificatory stories. But I think the justificatory stories come second.
3: Okay. But what comes first?
2: The fait accompli. I mean, what is right now? <laughs> what comes first?
3: That, there's our difference. What comes first is the struggle for power, this constant class struggle what comes first from your way of looking is the social order complete. I don't think it ever is complete. The other thing is that I think the story we tell each other about what comes first, how societies arise, how power works itself out to begin with, is a story that is ideological, that our whole conception of these issues are ideological. We're not going to be able to get out of it. You pointed to an historical example where The way trade was done didn't seem to be influenced by the religion's order of the time. I don't actually know if that's the case, but assuming that it's true, that would disprove my idea that God had a social function or its primary role was a social function, or at least maybe the scale that God's influence, you know, I'm overstating. The second thing I want to get to is what ideology does is tell us the story of class struggle in a way that legitimizes the ruling elite. And the secondary ideologies are like competing stories for different
2: power structures.
3: That's the ground level for me.
2: You know, I'm sitting up on the roof of the EcoVillage Training Center right now. And I have with me, I don't know if it's the most recent issue, but it's a very recent issue of Wired Magazine. It's the one with the bright orange cover that says the web is dead. And there is a story in here about this town in Oklahoma named Pitcher. And Pitcher was a mining community. It was a very profitable mining community. And let me just read you uh, part of one paragraph from the story. According to the U.S. Bureau of Mines, the Pitcher mining field yielded 1.7 million tons of lead and 8.8 million tons of zinc between 1891 and 1970. The payoff, about $202 million in total sales. But to get it, Pitcher processed nearly 181 million tons of ore. They processed 181 million tons of ore and they made $202 million in the process. According to my calculations, and, and do check this, they spent about a dollar and twelve cents to process a million tons of ore at a profit. And if you look at the role that fossil fuels played in that process, and you look at the role that ideology plays in that process. Tell me which one is primary. Tell me which one has the greater effect in turning a million tons of ore into raw materials for a dollar twelve.
3: Well you would want me to say fossil fuels.
2: Well I would love for you to say something that was convincing that told me that it was ideology that changed a million tons of rock into ore and made a profit for people, and they did it for a dollar and twelve cents.
3: If they weren't working for profit, they would never they have, have done, done that. It
2: by hand without fossil fuels.
3: They wouldn't have done it at all. Profit is the engine of production. And what's so, the,
2: what's the topic of conversation here? What's the central word that we're talking about? Collapse. Collapse. Now, right. could somebody who has continuous access to cheap fossil fuels continue that production under a different ideological system?
3: The question is, would they?
2: Well, we had free market capitalism, or call it you know, imperialist capitalism, if you like, and we had Soviet communism. Both systems had mines. Both systems extracted ore from the ground. Both of them used fossil fuels to do it. They had rather different and competing ideologies, but they were both able to use industrial processes.
3: Both of those systems had... A very similar set, even though they looked very different. I'm not, I would not in any way advocate Soviet-style communism as a solution. Soviet-style communism maintained, for one thing, the wage relationship. The basic class exploitation was the same. If you're not producing for private profit, but producing for social use, then that would radically alter what you did with the energy you had, regardless of how cheap it was.
2: What we're talking about is collapse. We're talking about going from a complex Situation socially and technologically to a much simpler one in a short period of time. You castigate people who emphasize the role that fossil fuels and diminishing access to them have in this rapid reduction in complexity. And you think that those people don't pay enough attention to ideology. And I'm asking you, what change in ideology is going to prevent that rapid simplification in the absence of cheap energy from fossil fuels?
3: The collapse that you're talking about is first of all already happened in a good portion of the world in other words a good portion of the world lives that kind of simple life of immiseration so the a collapse question,
2: is a move from complexity to a lower level of complexity much of the world is poor but they haven't recently fallen from high tech industrial first world well, standards well, no, down uh, to where they are now See, that's i don't collapse. know if that uh,
3: so i see collapse here is described constantly through loss of faith so you, if you want to read if you want to change it into say it's a move from complexity to you know more simple Social structures, that's a different definition of collapse, isn't it?
2: Well, we started this conversation by reading Dmitry Orlov's Five Levels of Collapse, and if you go back and read Dmitri's essay, he is explicitly making reference to Joseph Tainer, and Joseph Tainer's definition of collapse is a loss in technological and social complexity, a dramatic loss in a short period of time. That's what Dimitri's talking about, and if we're framing this discussion in terms of Dimitri's five levels of collapse, and you recently published an essay criticizing Dimitri and his conception of the five levels of collapse, then that's the collapse that we're talking about. But If you want to that... change the definition of collapse, that's okay, but again, you need to tell some folks, Well, see, because otherwise I think... we're talking past each other.
3: One of the things that, that is going on here is that we have a different ideology, right? I definitely see that there is going to be social impact uh, as we, if peak oil is true, which I believe it is, it's going to be a social impact. One of the key components to Dmitry Orlov's essay is the loss of faith and connection between people on each level. What I want to ask is what is it that people are going to be losing faith in? And
2: it's a different uh, answer at each level. First, it's the market then you know, it's government, and then it's local organizations, and then it's just a local community, and finally it's your faith that uh, humans are, are any good at all.
3: Well, I think that for a lot of people, as far as faith in human goodness, I think that loss of that faith happened a long time ago.
2: Fossil fuel allows us, for example, to turn a million tons of rock into commodity precious metals at a profit and lets us do a million tons for $1.12 at a profit. It is the energy embedded in fossil fuels that allows us to do that much productive work. My contention is that the ideology behind the decision to do the work is important, but it is not nearly as important to our standard of living and the amount of technological and social complexity that we're allowed to maintain as is the embedded energy in the fossil fuel. And if you take away that access to the high-quality energy of fossil fuel, it doesn't matter what your ideology is, we are going to see a rapid, dramatic, painful, traumatic change in social complexity from the complex to the shockingly simple. Ideology barely enters into it.
0: So, Doug and Camo, the real question here is, does the energy lead to the ideology, or does the ideology lead to how the energy is actually used in society, and I yeah, think that's the real point of distinction right here.
2: Yeah, that's Well, what I, I would say I, that both of those happen. I mean, obviously, we have this system, and it has a lot to do with the way we issue money, but we have this system that promotes competition. It creates an artificial scarcity. We've got all these people competing for money, and there's more money owed back to the banks than actually exists, so somebody's got to fail. So in spite of unprecedented material abundance, we all feel really panicked. We feel like we have to get out there and really compete with one another. And I agree. There's certainly an ideological combat. But you don't have to understand the ideology. We could change the money system. Most people wouldn't even see that it had been changed, and the conditions that we live under would change. And it wouldn't require a change of people's ideology. And we can change the ideology, But if we don't change the underlying mechanisms of exchange, then the change in ideology isn't going to amount to much. And all of that is of minuscule importance if you take away our ability to harness fossil fuel energy. Without that, the life that we know that allows us to have this conversation the way that we're having it goes away. And ideology is of utterly no importance in terms of our quality of life then. We have to figure out how we are going to shelter ourselves, clothe ourselves, feed ourselves, and to the extent that we have to, transport ourselves.
3: I don't quite understand what we're trying to hold on to or why we're reluctant to change people's ideology. First of all, we're not facing tomorrow all of the fossil fuels being gone. What we're facing is dwindling supplies and a need to reconfigure how we wisely use those the, the energy we have and... In order to figure that out, you have to figure out who's important in your society and how you want power to be distributed. Because if you don't do those things, what you'll end up with is just what we have, which is that, yeah, dwindling supplies of energy, dwindling numbers of elites who actually have massive amounts of of wealth, and uh, more and more people being pushed into immiseration, into being superfluous, leading all the way maybe to a Malthusian correction. But if you can address how power is distributed, and what we're trying to accomplish, then you know if you can get to that, then you might have a chance at using the resources we have much more wisely, creating a much more humane situation. But I don't see how you can do this technical fix of just, I'm not even sure what it would mean without power and social power being a part of it. I'm not sure I even get it.
2: Do you get that I don't have any strong objection to your talking in terms of politics and ideology until you explicitly start criticizing me for not really caring too much about that?
3: Uh, yeah, but the, I because here's the I thing. Mean, do
2: you see that we start out with so much in common that we are very much uh, kindred in terms of our backgrounds and our shared interests, and it is your insistence on this political factionalism and this political ideological talk that has to take a specific form that causes somebody who's very much on your side from the beginning to get really irritated with you.
3: What I, what I don't understand is what you're defending. I mean, if
2: you can't make peace with me on this issue, how are you going to talk to the other people that you consider to be part of your class? You know, the people in the tea party, the people who are pissed off about the situation as it stands, and they have some ideas about how they'd like to see things changed. If the way that you describe your ideology and the need for everybody to phrase it in the same way is going to alienate somebody like me who is so on your side to start with, what effect is it going to have on them? And if you can't even get me on board, if your ideological language is so inflexible that you can't change the way that, you know, you talk about things or can't even accommodate somebody else's doing it without criticizing them, what possible hope do you have of generating this ideological solidarity with people who worship Sarah Palin?
3: I don't, I don't know. You know like I'm probably not the best person as far as how to communicate well or get people to see my point of view. So I, I may not be able to convince everybody.
2: Or anybody but who isn't already a Marxist.
3: Maybe. The question isn't whether or not I can convince people. The question is, can come to any kind of like consensus as to what's right? You know? It's like, okay, um, I'm being too ideological, and ideology doesn't matter. Is that what you're saying?
2: I'm not saying ideology doesn't matter. I'm saying your rigid and just insistence on a particular way of phrasing an ideology or a particular way of encoding talk about power relations or social relations is not only not winning over the hearts and minds of everybody that you would want to be in your class, but it's actually actively alienating who are on your side to start with, people who gave you the benefit of the doubt to start with. You know, I vouched for you and I told Jim Kunzler that I thought it would be a good idea for him to go on your show. Mm-hmm. And now he and Dmitry Orlov have both told me that you know, they're sorry they went on your show. And my credibility with them is damaged because of the way they were treated on your show. And they have a lot to say. You don't have to agree with everything they say. But when you insist on framing everything in terms of this very rigid and very esoteric ideological terminology it just irritates people unless they already agree with you. But so few people in our society already agree with you that you know, once you find those people, you can get together you know, for pizza and beer and use that language and talk about how stupid everybody else is. But when you leave that room, it's time to think about the perspective that other people have and think about how the ideology that you use is causing people to have a reaction to you a hostile reaction that is completely unnecessary. I mean, if you, you know, could tailor what's interesting, your what's message to, me is to your audience, not, you could yeah. communicate more effectively and possibly engender some of the solidarity that you would like to exist between people who you think all occupy a particular class.
3: You know, what's interesting to me is like with James Howard Kunstler, I asked him questions and he started yelling at me. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so... <laughs> I, I, I didn't actually attack him. I wasn't rude to him. I just asked him questions he didn't like. If you don't like my questions, there are two reasons why you don't. People don't like my wouldn't like my questions. One of would, would be because they're misleading. They miss the point. They're wrong. Um, I've, I'm making a big mistake. Okay, those are that's one reason not to like my question. There's lots of reasons. Maybe I, you don't understand them. Uh, I'm speaking the wrong language. I mean, I'm not communicating well. The other reason is because. You have your own ideology, which you don't like having
2: pressed against. You have your Do you own think I agree with everything that everybody who comes on my show says? Or have you noticed that there are times when somebody will say something that I could dig my heels in and disagree with them about and have an argument over, and I don't. I let it pass, and I find the things where we are where in agreement and where I can elicit something from them that I want to hear. Have right. you ever heard me talk to anybody the way I'm talking to you right now?
3: No, but have, have you no. ever heard me talk to anyone that way on my podcast? Was I, anywhere I close to
2: you on your podcast discount what people tell you because it has ideological triggers in it that you find irresistible. I would encourage you to go back and re-listen to your conversation with Shannon Hayes. She gave you such gold in that conversation, and I don't think you heard it.
3: Okay, w- wait, wait. There's a difference between giving people the space to talk without arguing with them on my podcast, which is one thing, and internalizing the entirety of their message. I have problems with Shannon Hayes uh, as far as her message goes. I don't have any problems with her as a person. I think that she's trying to perfect consumption rather than contest production. And I think that's only half the story. I don't think that it's worthless, and I definitely think that there's something really great about Shannon Hayes and what she uh, what she's advocating. And, but I would ask her about that if she came on. If I have a thought about what she's pushing, and I think, oh, there's an area where I have a question I don't necessarily 100% agree, I'll ask her about it. I won't, you know, I'm not going to be rude about it, but I will ask her.
0: But, but also, I don't want us to get too, too nitpicky here about the way
2: we choose to host our podcasts.
3: Camo, I've never made this argument personal. I mean, I would I encourage just,
2: you to glean the wisdom of, of Tyler Durden and Fight Club. How's that working out for you? Are you getting the results from it that you want? If so, good for you. Keep it up.
3: But I mean, I haven't made it personal, have I? Right?
2: I don't know if you have or not. It irritates me.
3: I just want to point out that I don't.
2: I try not to make it personal.
3: And I, w- I guess I would just say that I, I, I will take it to heart, your advice as to how to approach people about my ideas. But I would just ask you to consider that maybe irritation isn't always a sign that the person who's talking to you is full of shit or something's wrong with them. You know, maybe people get irritated sometimes when they hear things they don't like to hear. But that doesn't mean that the person who's talking to them is wrong or right. You know, like, like, let me give you one example and then I'll stop on this. I had a conversation before the war in Iraq with a woman who was quite conservative. And she said that she was for the war and she was against France because France was arming Iraq. And they were sending, you know, chemical weapons or something to Iraq. Now, I didn't know if this was true or not, if there's any basis to it. But just to bring it up seemed to me to be so fundamentally wrong that I couldn't even think in response to her. Steam started coming out of my ear because it was (laughs) what she was saying was so fundamentally opposed to just the way I started the conversation. The idea that France would somehow be a serious threat in all this when we were about to invade the country, it just seemed so fundamentally wrong that I couldn't um, even start to talk about it with her anymore. And I think, in fact, looking back on it, She was fundamentally wrong. If I didn't say to myself, okay, you had this reaction, why is she wrong? And then figure out why I thought she was wrong. It would have been an unconscious ideological reaction, regardless of my feelings about it. It would have been an unconscious ideological reaction until I could have said, look, here's why she's wrong. Here's my assumptions. Here's her assumptions. Here's why I can kick her assumptions aside. If I can't do that, then I'm having an unconscious ideological reaction, as justified as it might be in the end. And I, I felt like, you know, I was being basically intellectually lazy with her because she was so opposed to my way of thinking. So that's all I'll say about that. I, I, but I will take it to heart. I mean, it's not just you. I've been irritating lots of people lately, the And And uh, believe me, I would prefer not to rub more powerful people like James Howard Kunstler and Dimitri Orloff the wrong way. And I'm sorry I compromised your relationship with them.
0: I think the key point is we were able to take the core philosophies of the Sea realm and the diet soap podcast and contrast those and then bring out the, I guess, heat that had been building over the two discussions. Uh,
3: the heat got built up, but I don't feel like I am any closer to understanding what's gone wrong here. <laughs> or, <you know. laughs> so I, I wish that I was
0: right. Okay. So I, I think just summing up everything we've, we've talked about, I think, can we all start from the point that there is an immense amount of feedback between ideology and energy, and that the way we use energy can't originate without ideology, but also the ideology is built on top of the ways that we use energy? Is that a fair statement to make?
2: Oh, absolutely. I I think the energy, if applied in a particular way, in terms of mechanics, works regardless of one's ideology.
3: Yeah, but what you choose to do is going to be...
0: incredibly different but but it's not the physics of the energy it's the organization of the flows of that energy in the society yeah
3: right you don't have to mine for diamonds there's no reason it doesn't matter about fossil fuel that's pure ideology at work mining for diamonds all the bloodshed around that there's nothing there except ideology diamonds aren't particularly more valuable than other other stones for any material reason they're just ideologically valuable and that and therefore immensely profitable so people expend energy,
0: right? So, so the point, if if we can take a nugget about the conversation out, it's just simply that there is that complex relationship between energy and ideology, which I don't know uh, if it has been necessarily explored in this amount of depth before, or maybe it has. Perhaps I'm that sure, was really part sure of John Michael Greer's uh, long descent.
3: Can I say one last thing? And then, yeah, uh, I have, go ahead, go right? ahead,
0: Doug, and then Camo can can say one last thing and then
3: it's just gonna be weird but i watched a movie called ponyo right by uh, uh, miyazaki this morning with my kids and this is like the retelling of the little mermaid um only it's really an interesting version i think that even the disney version is more adult more full of human drama than this version despite how surrealist this is and how visually stunning this one is you know little mermaid is about a a fish lady who you know wants to be wants to have sex. That's the story. That's the subtext of the Little Mermaid. And we've got Ms. Miyazaki's version, which is about like a, a five-year-old and uh, you know a boy who has her as his pet goldfish. But the reason why Miyazaki wants to get rid of all this human drama part is because of his environmentalist message. He basically is against the human. And so as such, he removes this whole human drama from the story. So it's just super abstracted. It's basically, does this boy love his goldfish as a goldfish? (laughs) If he does, then she can be a little girl. I see that going on all over the place. Basically, there's this turning away from the human side, the, the consciousness part of the way the world works as if it's irrelevant. And what that does is it has two effects. One is that it uh, makes most people more infantile. It, it did in this story. And the other thing it does is naturalize uh, stuff that really isn't natural at all, like the relationship between a little boy and his goldfish.
2: Just, you, know, you, you mentioned that you thought that this was a good contrast between the, the philosophy of the Z realm and the philosophy of diet soap. And I, I don't see that we've touched on the philosophy of the Z realm at all, really. I've, I've given voice to my irritation with Doug's insistence on using this rather, to my mind, dated and somewhat poisoned ideology. And I'm not saying it's poison because it's bad. I'm saying it's poison because it's been demonized by its opponents very successfully for half a century or more. And it just causes people to discount what you have to say, particularly if you have to frame everything in terms of a criticism. You know, to criticize Shannon Hayes, and I don't remember the exact phrase that you used, uh, she, she advocates consumption rather than uh, protests production or something like that. Yeah, I mean, she
3: advocates perfecting consumption instead of uh, wanting to contest the way we produce the world.
2: To phrase what she told you in that language is to completely jettison everything of value that she had to say in order to fit it into the Procrustean bread of your existing ideological Vocabulary, And what I've told you again and again is that when you present ideas and then put my name on them, they are such ridiculous simplifications of what I've been trying to say, but they have to be in order to fit the ideological frame in which you wish to present them. And, you know, that's fine, and I understand your position that people should have a, a, an ideology that they overtly identify with, but at the same time, if you can't remove yourself from it, step out of it from time to time, look at it from a different frame, then there's just no way you can even come to grips with other people's presentation of reality, much less the underlying reality. I mean, if you can't even, if you can't even take what I'm saying just in the same language that I use rather than completely disassemble it and only, you know, reassemble it only using the parts that make sense within the framework of Marxism or, you know, whatever sort of fanciful East European vocabulary you want to put on it. There's no way you can even hear what I'm saying, much less evaluate whether what I'm saying has any truck with reality. So yes, ideologies are inescapable. But at the same time, if you don't see any problem with wholly identifying with one and championing one and, and not, giving, you know, not stepping outside of it long enough to even wear a different one, stepping outside of your critique mode, stepping outside of your you know, ideological trigger and response mode, then there's just no hope of coming to grips with the underlying reality. And you know, maybe there is no hope at all. I'm open to that. But at the same time, I think there is hope of people getting along with one another. The insistence on a particular political language is an impediment to
0: that. All right. Well, thanks, Doug, and thanks, Camo, for appearing on the Extra Environmentalist podcast. I, I kind of feel a lot like the Coen Brothers movie Burn After Reading, where you know it, it the movie kind of starts and then suddenly just everyone ends up getting shot at and people die <laughs> and the CIA, it, you know uh, J.K. Simmons uh, with he's the CIA uh, director in that movie and he asks his agent like what what do we do wrong here and the agents are like I don't know and he's just like don't let that happen again. So, <laughs> okay, yeah.
3: Um, well, I kind of feel like I wish that this was just one conversation rather than the the beginning and the end of the conversation. Um, uh, so I'll just say to KMO, I will try to take what you're saying to heart, um, But uh, and maybe we could try to talk again about something along these lines uh,
2: in the future. I'm willing to do that.
0: And you guys are welcome to do that on our podcast, or since you have your own podcast, you can use that as a form, but by all means, you're more than welcome to come back here to
2: all
0: right so that wraps up our uh, discussion with Camo of the Ciram podcast and Doug Lane of the Diet Soap podcast, we <laughs> bit off quite a chunk there, uh, having two very eloquent and articulate guests who are very uh, well read in their particular areas,
1: passionate about their yes, points of view. I think
0: passionate is, is the word to, to have there, and they really went at it. They they really um, they really uh, had some very intense debate uh, for a bit, but um, it definitely exposed some areas that I had not really thought about before when listening to their uh, particular shows, and we crossed into some new territory, and at the very least, the conversation was quite entertaining.
1: As you know, if you're a regular listener to The Extra Environmentalists, we don't go small here. We go for the big stuff. We don't mess around with, you know, small potatoes. We go right for the, the main course, steak and more steak.
0: Yeah, No starches here, just complete protein.
1: Yes, protein 100% of the time.
0: After the conversation, Doug and KMO talked a little bit offline, and then Doug sent me some of his thoughts on the conversation, which I can read now. Let's hear it. All right, so Doug sent me a message, and he just said that... So these are Doug's words. I wanted not to talk about peak oil or complex systems... Precisely because I don't believe that what is collapsing is a system that has been up to now homeostatic and functional. That we have been living well with cheap fossil fuels, creating more and more complex social systems, but that cheap oil is running out. Rather, I believe that while it is true that we've been creating more and more centralized systems of social power, and that these systems rely on cheap energy and advancing technology to function, Nonetheless, we have been simultaneously living with perpetual crisis and a sense of doom all along. What I wanted to point out was the nature of our modern society. I essentially wanted to take the position of the fish pointing out the water. After talking with KMO privately and in public, I have come to the conclusion that my understanding of his position is not complete. So, in order to avoid an error, my statements are specifically not a response to his position. I don't fully understand his position. Still, I do want to criticize my own perception of a certain approach to collapse. I disagree with the idea that we can treat the current political and economic system as essentially a system of energy flows that are overly complex, or that a move to simplicity can be accomplished strictly on the level of how we use and relate to energy. I want to point out that we are social beings, that we have created systems To distribute not only natural resources but also social power and that these systems of social power while shaped by the natural environment are not identical to it it is easy enough for me to imagine that after an ecological catastrophe or energy collapse, we would remain with something like the same social system, only perhaps a bit more barbaric version of it. What I wanted to get at when I spoke of faith and the death of God is how this water we're swimming in is a system of power relationships. Without denying the problems we have regarding resources and energy, I feel compelled to continuously point out that we are living in a class system, that we have incredibly concentrated systems of social power, and that inequality and instability are the problems we face and not aspects of the solution.
1: That Doug Lane is an eloquent guy. Uh,
0: definitely. <laughs> the, the conversation was perpetuated by Doug, and uh, even though during the conversation I said we kind of took a cross-section of both hosts and their, the philosophies of their shows and put it out a little bit, Camo raised the point that we didn't really touch on the philosophy of the Sea Realm at all, Um, And I think Camo definitely has a point there in that uh, it it was Doug who was starting this conversation uh, and responding to it. uh, I think Doug does a good job with with these closing notes and summarizing everything, summarizing his position, and wrapping it up.
1: I do think it's important to note that these two guys are very much on the same page about a lot of issues and that this issue is just one little sticking point. But if you've listened to any of their stuff before, you can kind of of see that they are on a lot of issues on very much the same page. Definitely. So, Justin, tell me about other exciting guests that we're going to be having on the show.
0: Coming up uh, with much less delay between our last episode and this episode be a discussion with Conrad Schmidt of the British Columbia Work Less Party. Uh, and that's not a house party. That's an actual political party. We're going to talk about why the SUV may be more ecologically uh, helpful than the bike. And while that sounds a, a bit confusing, it makes a lot of sense uh, once you actually hear Conrad's take on everything. And then also, uh, after a conversation with Conrad, uh, we have David Corton, uh, author of Agenda for a New Economy. He's giving a speech here at UBC uh, this upcoming Wednesday, so I'm very excited about that, and we're going to be uh, recording his speech and playing that on a future episode. And then the following week after that, I'm bringing Stuart Brand into UBC, uh, president of the Long Now Foundation and author of many things, uh, as well as his most recent book, Whole Earth Discipline. Uh, We'll be recording his talk and playing it here on a future episode as well.
1: Wow, that sounds like a lot of great content coming your way, audience of the Extra Environmentalist.
0: I can hear them chanting from their computers and iPods.
1: I can definitely hear that chanting. Yeah. If you want to uh, bring that chanting a little bit closer to to our ears, um, we have a new voicemail number that you can go ahead and leave a voicemail message on.
0: Hey guys, uh, this is Justin calling, and I just want to say that your podcast is awesome, and I definitely have all of my friends listening to it, and I've given them cake to listen to the podcast.
1: I think those extra environmentalist guys are really cute, and I don't think that I would ever not want to listen to this podcast.
0: <laughs> I mean, I'm hanging up. That's that's terrible.
1: As you can hear from our voicemail message that we just played for you, it's pretty exciting, and we would love to have you on here and have your voice
0: so just give us a call at uh, plus one because it's a US number 919-701-9872 and that's 919-701-XTRA because this is the Extra Environmentalist Podcast so give us a call respond to something we've said tell us what you'd like to hear on the podcast or dole out a philosophy that we can play and expound on Maybe you give us a one-sided interview, and then we just respond to it. I think that'd make for an interesting episode.
1: Thanks for listening again. You can come visit our website at extraenvironmentalist.com or send us an email at podcast at extraenvironmentalist.com. That's all for today, folks.
0: Look at that beard. It's Marcus. No, Marcus doesn't have a beard. Seth has a beard. Hi, Marcus. Hey, Marcus. Hey, guys. I cannot hear you. I can't hear you. There's no volume.